As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I am Ben Bolin. Ben, you look like you were going to say something else. Like maybe, maybe you were going to come in there with a nickname or something. Were you I was to? about to. I was about to call myself Ben Pick Pick Bullet. Really, I'm going to be Scott uh, Swiss Army Knife Benjamin. That's a good one. That's not bad. Yeah, that's, that's not bad. Of, uh, ready for anything, right? Right. And, yeah. And today we are ready for anything. In specific, we're going to be talking about one thing though, which is the uh, the Geneva Motor Show. Yeah, the Geneva Motor Show. Of course, everybody knows about this show. World famous, and it's a chance for a lot of people to see never before seen vehicles occasionally, uh, but also to see uh, very obscure cars from automotive history. Mm -hmm. And you and I were fascinated by a New York Times article that talked about a mystery car yes. of the Geneva Motor Show. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, there was this kind of... Uh I don't know, man, what do you want to call this? This is like an estate car that was touring around and, and dropping off VIP guests and, yeah. uh, taking them, you know, shuttling them to and from hotels and things like that, right? Ben, this is a, yep. uh, um, I, I don't know how to describe the, the body style that we're looking at, but it's an unusual vehicle for sure. Right. And this one is unusual because it, this specific vehicle is a little bit unusual because it's kind of, um, well, to be honest, man, not to, not to be overly candid, it's sort of a mongrel car. I guess so, but this thing is a hundred years old. And when you look at the photo of uh, of this car in the New York, the New York Times, yeah, uh, it's a it's a gorgeous looking car. I mean, Fantastic. it looks like something you'd find in a Concours event. You know, it's a it's yeah. an open top. Uh, it's a roadster design, not a roadster design, rather, but it's got a, it does have a back seat. It's also being driven by a guy in a top hat and tails. That doesn't hurt anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, with trunks attached to the sideboards and everything like that. It's really a, it's a cool vehicle. It's classy. But it's hard to describe something like this without having, you know, our listeners go out and look at it. So maybe right. if they search, uh, mystery car of the Geneva Motor Show, the New York Times, you'll see a, a, a nice big photograph of this thing and, and you'll take a look at it. You'll, I think you'll be impressed by it. That car, you gotta remember, is 100 years old this year. It's an old, old vehicle. Yes. And yeah. it was a bit of a mystery as to why it was there in Geneva, though. 
Right. And for some people, it was mysterious even in just terms of identifying the vehicle, right? Yeah, because you can walk around the car and you can look at the badging. And the sure. badging says, uh, what, what does the badging say? The badging says, pick, pick, yeah. which uh, Geneva claims as its only native automaker. That's right. And it, we'll find out how that came to be, of course. You know, we'll, we'll talk through this a bit. But mm-hmm. um, a lot of people have never heard of a pick, pick or peak, peak, as, it, as some people may call mm-hmm. it. Uh, because there's only three of these things known to exist in the world today. Now, that's really, really weird to me because yeah. this company at one time, as we'll find out, was just churning out cars like mm-hmm. mad. I mean, it, yeah. car after car after car, but where did they all go, Ben? Maybe maybe World War II ate them all up because these are early, early 20th century vehicles, and that's my guess mm-hmm. is that uh, these things were destroyed, somehow lost, um, yeah. but for three Three cars to exist with this badging out of thousands, out of thousands of cars. Maybe, and you know, maybe this is a, t- a turn on the th- on the or twist on this, in that you know we're saying that it, the ones that are badged as peak peak cars are the ones that only three of these really exist. Now. I think that's part of it. Maybe because this has ties to other automobile companies as yep. well, and maybe exa- and well, I do know that examples of those other vehicles exist elsewhere. Hole in one, Scott, because that's what I was thinking as well. Now, pick pick. Let's be honest, sounds a little bit Seussian, a little bit like a, a silly word in a children's book, mm-hmm. but it is a portmanteau derived from the names Picard and Pictet, uh, more specifically Paul Picard and his partner Lucian Pictet. Uh, and I want to point out here, you've been saying pick, pick, I've been saying peak, peak. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because uh, when you say Picard, Pictet, um, I've also heard the French pronunciation as Picard and Pictet. Uh, and for all of our listeners out there, Scott, Swiss Army Knife, Benjamin, you are correct. That is the French pronunciation. I'm Americanizing it. Ah, uh, and you know what? We're going to Americanize another one later as well because there's another little twist to this whole story that we'll get yep. to. Um, not as big as a Dale twist, but you know, <laughs> something like that. So, all right. So let's, uh, let's go back to the beginning of this vehicle here. Now, now Geneva, as we said, claims this vehicle as its one and only hometown automaker. And uh, that's pretty important for a, a city that you know has a show like this. I mean, this show is, has been around since 1905. A Pick Pick or Peak Peak has been at the show since 1906. Uh-huh. I mean, that was the first year that one was displayed there. So you know they've got a lot of uh, of national pride in this vehicle. They've got a lot of, of pride in this brand. But the brand wasn't always Peak Peak. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was. It began as Hispano Suiza. Yep. Yeah, it began as Hispano Suiza, which can be a a little bit of a confusing thing here. Um, so Piquet uh, was traveling to Spain, Barcelona, Spain, in 1905, and when he was there, he met a uh, fellow Swiss national named Mark Berkigt of the Hispano Suiza company. How bad did I mispronounce that? One? I think that was pretty good. Better than I can. Better than I can do. So. Uh, so he's there in Barcelona. Yeah, and he, Lucien Piquet, is overwhelmed with how much he loves the Hispanol Suiza. Mm-hmm. So uh, he signs a licensing agreement with this company to start manufacturing their vehicles. And Hispano Suiza, just so that you know, was only around since 1904. Yeah. So, And I say only. I mean, that's a long time now, but uh, that's 110 years ago at this point. But, you know, at the time, this is a, a what, a two-year-old vehicle or one-year-old vehicle right. when he sees it? Very young. Uh, so he's very, very impressed with it. I mean, that says a lot about the about the car. And Hispano Suiza cars end up showing up uh, even now 
in concourse events all over the place. Right, yeah. And, and, they, and these are museum pieces. These are priceless yeah. at this point. You cannot put a fair price on them. Absolutely. But, you know, one quick thing that we've got to add here, too, is that there's another couple. We mentioned uh, just briefly, you mentioned uh, the Picard brothers, right? Yeah, uh, Paul and Lucian. Yeah, Paul. Now, Paul Picard. Oh, yeah. Uh, I guess he didn't. Now, this is funny. Now, this is a, uh, what's, what's the, uh, the company? They are a, um, an industrial manufacturing company, I believe. Right. Is so they're right? fabricating, uh, they're fabricating things for commercial use, right? They're, wor- they're metal workers. Exactly right. Yeah. So they've got this big manufacturing facility. They're able to do things with, uh, you know, with, with materials that I guess individuals couldn't, you know, they can't order large sums of, uh, of steel and, engines and all that stuff and put it all together in their own shed. But it's very important to say they are not specifically a car manufacturer, right? Not at at this this point. point. Not at this point. So that, you know, we're talking about uh, Paul Picard and he didn't like the relatively new invention of automobile because he thought, you know, Ah, what's wrong with the, uh, the horse and carriage? You know, I, I like, I kind of liked it the way it was. Yeah. He was, now this is an elderly guy, which kind of makes sense. I guess he was a little bit stuck in his ways. It right? feels Mr. Burns-like to me. Uh, you know, we, Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Yeah, I absolutely do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. One of my favorite characters, by the way. I, I just picture him, I just picture him saying, you know, Lucian, if we had been intended to ride horseless carriages, then why were horses invented or yeah, something something, something yeah. crazy like that. Yeah, some uh-huh. some backwards assumption right mm-hmm. so so his younger partner i guess uh lucian now lucian thought that you know cars had a bright future he thought that oh, yeah. these were the way to go and that's why he was interested when he went over to barcelona and that's why he got involved with you know the hispano suiza group and said hey i'd like to bring these back and i'd like to buy manufacturing rights for these because i can i've got a factory where i uh, you know these industrial manufacturing facility in geneva that i would love to build a car exactly like the Hispano Suiza in Geneva, and I will call it, uh, you know, something else. I, you know, I, I'll have a different name for it because I know two brothers that might be interested in this design. Yes, yeah. And uh, the two brothers he knew that would be interested in this design were Charles and Frederick uh, Defoe, mm-hmm. I guess, is the best way to say that. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share 
other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Charles and Frederick Defoe were... Guys with the dream of building their own race car. Yeah. And how cool is that, Ben? In 1906, they want to be race car drivers. I mean, it's a relatively new thing to begin with. Yeah. But they decided they want to go into racing because, you know, it was the kind of the, the coolest new thing to do. And it was fun and adrenaline and all that. You know, how, how interesting would it be to be around in the turn of the 20th century and kind of be able to go to a company with a design and say, build me this race car. I'd love to, mm-hmm. I'd love to take this out on the track and see what it can do. And just go to them with, you know, like an, a wide open palette and say, Show me what you've got. 80 horsepower. That race car had 80 horsepower. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, we we talk about how low the horsepower was in some of these bigger, older engines. This right. was a straight eight, uh-huh. 12-liter engine that had 80 horsepower. So that's a monster engine, huge engine. Yeah. But uh, with only 80 horsepower, I mean, it, it just, I mean, they just weren't able to tune it the way it was. And, mm-hmm. you know, tolerances weren't the same as what they are now. Uh, they just were uh, big, fast, but loose engines. And very uh, inefficient, I guess, in, in a lot of different ways. Right. But, again, I think 80 horsepower is impressive for the time. So they, these two brothers, Charles and Frederick, they say, um, you know, who's the best Who's the best guy in town to go with when we want to ma- – who can actually manufacture this race design that we have? Mm-hmm. And so they contacted the guys at Picard and Pictet. And uh, this was some friction. This is a source of friction for Lucian and Paul – because, you know, Paul thought that uh, horseless carriages were just sort of going to be like the laser disc or the beta max of his age. Sure, he felt they were going away. Yeah, and Lucian thought they had a good idea. So eventually um, they resolved their differences by founding SAG in 1905 or the Société de Geneva. Yeah, and this was a marketing company. So it was... A separate legal entity that contracted. Yeah, so they, so again, they bought the manufacturing rights to Hispano Suiza cars from Barcelona. Yeah. And, you know, ba- based on the, the automobile company there, you know, from 1904, whenever it was, I guess, I think it was 1904. Uh-huh. And they said, we're going to build these in Geneva, as we mentioned, but we're going to badge them how we want to badge them. And they badged these initial ones as, uh, as Peak Peak, which is a, uh, as a, um, a shortening of the, the name Picard and Pitet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, these, okay, so at this time, 
right? We all know what is looming ahead for mm-hmm. Europe, and that is World War One. Yeah, which is strange to think about because we, you know, and that's the whole reason that the Geneva Geneva Auto Show has only been around for well, it's, it's run eighty four times, but the thing has been around for like one hundred and ten years. Right. They actually had to, they had to shut down for World War Two mm-hmm. and World War One, which a lot of people don't consider. I mean, because this history goes way way back. You have to think about you know, two big gaps in time when they couldn't do this type of thing. So World War One is looming, but prior to that I want to make note of one quick thing before we really talk about World War One and what and what happened with uh with, with the Peak Peak car. Right. On. Um they changed their logo sometime around nineteen oh eight. Now they've been running in um reliability tests and they've been doing a little bit of motorsports, you know, because that was the initial goal from the uh the Dufo brothers, right? And I guess mm-hmm. they weren't terribly successful in motorsports, but they were a very reliable automobile. Right. And they were making all kinds of changes along the way, different engine uh, sizes and, and horsepower designations, and they were making touring cars, and they were making um, sedans. They were making all different kinds of vehicles and, uh, you know, different body styles even. And in 1908, I think the cars, uh, I think this this corresponds with, um, I want to say the Scottish reliability. reliability yeah, you're correct. Testing. Yeah, That's the... Right. Uh- 1908 Scottish reliability trials. Exactly right. Yeah, and, and the thing is that I think they had some success there, and mm-hmm. uh, they did so well that um, let's see, they uh, they actually they had a uh, special type of coachwork named after the event. Yeah, uh, that's right. That, so they did exceptionally well there. I mean, right. well enough that they named something, you know, a part of their vehicle after the event. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the thing is that they had. Got this big, um, like this handsome, distinctive design, you know, as far as the way that the vehicle appeared. Radio, radiator shell, especially. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a very impressive design overall. People really liked it. And on that radiator, Ben, they had a, uh, a brand new logo and they took, they adopted this new logo in 1908 and it was uh, yeah. in a circle. Mm-hmm. And instead of, this is confusing because in, instead of just being PIC, Hyphen PIC, which is peak peak. Mm-hmm. They changed it to PIE slash PIE, which is a couple of different ways we're going to pronounce this here. Now, I right. believe, <laughs> I believe that it's pronounced PP. Right. Yeah. Uh, keeping with the original French, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could say pie pie, I guess, if you wanted to, if you want to Americanize this, right? I mean, yeah. Just keep it simple. But I believe that PIE, PIE is PP. So this is now the PP car mm-hmm. that's made in Geneva. And I know we chuckle at that, right? But, yeah. uh, but I mean, go to any French restaurant and I believe if you see the word PIE, it's pronounced P. Or is it a joke on you, non-French speaker? <laughs> no. It could be. It could, you know, I, I, I doubt that. I, I guess we'll call it the PP car, but you know, it's kind of funny. I'll call it the Pi Pi car because emotionally I'm like nine or 10 years old and I'm not confident that I can go through an entire conversation <laughs> without chuckling That's at fine. it. That's um, fine. But before we go on to some of the more recent developments, we talked about the origin of the Picard Pictet. And, and what, where it came from, but let's start talking about how it ends up at the Geneva Motor Show after, and give me some advice here, Scott, uh, is it about World War One? As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It 
She's a wise man. Marie is a wise woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Not anymore. Okay. It was, I was going to ask for some advice related to World War we'll I. You, I'll come in at the World War I stuff after the break. How about that? Okay. Okay, good. Well, what, what's your other question then? My other question, which I also worked on in advance and I'm not making up right now, is if you, is whether you have any audiobook recommendations for me because those last few, fantastic. That last one was a little bit long. Mm-hmm. 16 hours or so. Something like that. Yeah, but it was, it was well worth it. So I'd like to, I'd like to come back to you for some advice on audiobooks. I can't go back to the radio, Scott. Well, well this one's a bit shorter. Okay. And, uh, it's about, still, it's about nine and a half hours long, but it's a, uh, it's a great one. And, and I think the listeners of this podcast kind of enjoy stories. They like hearing, um, you know, the backstory of a lot of things. Right. right? Yeah. Okay. This is all about that. It's called Uncommon Carriers. And Uncommon Carriers is written by a Pulitzer Prize winning author named John McPhee. And John McPhee, um, he's also the, the uh, author of a book called The Founding Fish. Um, it's, an, it's kind of an, a story about an interesting overlooked part of American culture. Uh-huh. And that part is, uh, you know, people that, that carry freight and consumer goods and industrial goods 
all across the nation every day, all day long, and that's what they do. And it's the backstories of all those people. So wow. what McPhee did is he he was actually he went on trips with these people. He he you know rode in trucks. He he got on barges. He uh, he went on you know freight planes. He he did all kinds of different things with with these carriers. And he's telling the backstory of, of, of what it takes to get, you know, the, the, uh, the goods to you every day. Hmm. And so it's interesting. He, he begins with a guy named Don Ainsworth, who is the owner and operator of an 18 wheeler that hauls nearly 30 tons of highly toxic chemicals from North Carolina to Washington. So that's one story. Uh, then he continues his journey on a towboat that pushes over a thousand feet of barge up a narrow channel of the Illinois River. And then he rounds out his account by crawling through Nebraska, Kansas, and the Powder River Basin of Wyoming in massive coal trains. So he's like, it's really about all different types of industry, all different types of products. And again, these backstories of the people that he meets and the places that he visits. And of course, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. He's, he's, you know, he's good at telling stories. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is definitely a good audio book. So this is sort of a travelogue. It is. Yes. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's really well done. I mean, I, I, it's, it's nice to listen to. Uh, I would love to check that out. And luckily, uh, I have some good news for anyone else who would like to check this out today. You guys, uh, audiobooks come to us via audible.com. And just for knowing your buddies at Car Stuff, you can listen to a free audiobook download of your choice if you go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash car stuff and sign up today. Absolutely, Ben. And there's uh, there's something like 150,000 titles to choose from, mm-hmm. more than that, actually. Now, it, yep. it, it grows every day, literally. So uh, you've got a lot of opportunity to download something that is of interest to you. If, uh, if you know, if Uncommon Carriers is, you know, of interest to you, please do that one because it's worth it. But uh, you've got all these selections to make. Brief sidebar before sure. we go back to uh, the rest of our show for the pick pick. Uh, I've got to say, Scott, I think that a lot of people are not aware of just how much mo- our modern economy in the United States and the economy of the world depends upon uh, these carriers. Oh, absolutely. They're the backbone, really, of the modern world, if you think about it. Yeah, there's no other way to get the materials, too. There has to be a human element to this whole thing. Right. And those humans that are involved in that, we don't think about them all that often. We sure we think of trucking industries and we think of, you know, freight trains and, you know, barges and things like that. But the people that are on board, the people that do that every single day, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, sometimes it, it varies. Sometimes it's the exact same thing every day, day after day. But... Uh, they have interesting stories and, and, and really when you sit down to talk to people and you, you learn so much from, from, um, you know, what they've experienced and where they've been and who they've met because they meet and, and come into contact with so many different people and there are so many different places. Mm-hmm. Sometimes exotic, sometimes not exotic. And, and that doesn't matter. I mean, it, it's, you know, even what seems mundane to them would be interesting to us because it's different. Yeah. And I want to take a note and tell people, we usually mention this at the end of the show, but, uh, if you'd like to hear some more stories about common carriers and uncommon carriers, you can check out some of our episodes on, uh, we have one about traveling the world by cargo ship, I think. Yes, we do. Yeah, you can, you can find all of our podcasts on our website, carstuffshow.com. And, uh, we'd love to hear, for any of you, uh, freighters out there, we'd love to hear your stories as well. 
And speaking of fantastic stories, Scott, it's back to what I have decided to call the Pi Pi car because I am apparently too childish. Should I stick with PP or should I go with, you know, I was thinking about this, Ben. That could also be PA PA, I guess. And maybe it could. Yeah. Maybe neither, I'll go PA PA. How about that? us being francophones. Uh, <laughs> but, well, this is, um, I remember one time we were doing a show earlier and I think we had to cut for a second because you said something we were talking about the history of some some uh auto auto tycoon and you said that he but he couldn't do that what uh you you were talking about this guy and you said however what you do do and that cracked me up ah see and, and we're like in third grade instantly i couldn't yeah i don't know what happened to me but i apparently am still in third grade so uh be it as it may um this car, regardless of what you want to call it or how you want to pronounce its name, uh, this car made quite a splash in Switzerland and was the SAG um, and Picard Pictet uh, were riding high. You, you mentioned SAG and we've also talked about Peak Peak here. PP yeah. or whatever it is now at this point, but in Switzerland it was known as the SAG. Yeah. In Britain it was known as the uh, as the Picard Piquet or Pictet or Pic Pic. So you know it kind of depended on where it was. And then of course the same vehicle over in uh, Barcelona would be called the Hispano Suiza. Mm-hmm. And you know manufacturing at that time, I mean I think for the Hispano Suiza was like they made like twenty seven cars a year or something like that. Right. It was a relatively yeah. low low volume, of course, but it was anything but low volume. Uh, when World War One came about, because the Swiss Army, even though now this is strange to me, because the Swiss Army was neutral during World War One, right? right. I mean, I'm sorry, I should just say this: uh, Switzerland was neutral during World War One. <laughs> they did have a Swiss Army, right? Yeah. So th- the strange thing about this is that you know even during that time, th- there was some World War One service going on, which is strange. Now it wasn't being we talked about this because it wasn't being funded by anybody. It wasn't like, you know, they're making cars for the uh, for the German army or anything like that, right? And they're not right. being they're not being backed for anything like this. So, you know, even though production is humming right along, they're still kind of maintaining, you know, the uh the balance sheets, I guess, on their own. They're having to pay for everything themselves. Right. Uh, you know, they're they're hopefully selling all these vehicles, but the production really really cranked up. Um, they went, they rose to yeah. a maximum strength of, of what? How many, how many workers? 7,500 employees. Which is a huge workforce. Yeah. I mean, that's a massive workforce. So, so think about this factory in Switzerland employing 7,500 people to just churn out these pick-pick cars mm-hmm. day after day, all mm-hmm. throughout World War One, And, um, you know, but even before, I guess, even before the war, you know, the war started, I guess the demand had, had really risen fast, and that's why they were expanding. You know, that's why they got that big. That's why they yeah. were um, in such a large factory and able to employ so many people. Because they said, "Well, people really like this car. They really want this car. So we're just going to start building them, you know, one after the other, and see what happens." And I guess the the boom goes, you know, really well. I mean, there's this this sudden uptick in demand for the vehicle. There's a little bit of an explanation for that too. What's that? It's their motorsports because we said they weren't super performers, right? In the True. world of in the world of racing, uh, but we do know that they competed in the 1914 Grand Prix. Uh, they both cars were withdrawn. Just oh. a side note there. Mm-hmm. They also did hill climbing events. Uh, so they came in first place in Bern in 1911, Jaune Pass in 1912, and they were. 
they were cleaning up on some of these hill climbs because of the engine's reliability. Yeah, they say they, I mean, they call it a workhorse engine. Right. And they say that, you know, like, I mean, the idea behind that is that nothing's going to kill this thing. I mean, it's a strong, strong engine for reliability, but it's maybe not necessarily the fastest body and fastest engine. Um, you know, not the greatest horsepower, but they're going to hold together. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. And, and that's why I believe the, uh, the Swiss Army really, really was excited about these things. You know, they wanted, the Swiss Army wanted a bunch of them. I don't know exactly how many the order was for or anything like that, but, um, all through World War I, uh, the, the pick pick fam, or uh, factory rather, was just cranking out cars one after the other. And by the end of the war, or roughly the end of the war, around 1918, um, (laughs) I guess they were already at a deficit. Now, this is not not good for them. I I don't understand how that happens, but maybe they weren't being reimbursed by the Army. I don't know. Well, there's another point here, you know, being that Switzerland was neutral, but still needed to have these vehicles for the Army, a lot of the wartime manufacturing in other allied countries occurred with immense government assistance, you know, lend-lease programs for international supplies of hardware. And in the case of Switzerland, it seems that there, and, and somebody correct me on this if I've got this wrong, but it seems as though there is not the same support, the same uh, governmental support. It seems like they were just paying them to make the vehicles. I maybe maybe that was it. Maybe that could have been it. And you know maybe they were getting them at a uh, discount rate as well, you oh, know, because of, of volume or something right. like that. And so, this uh this gets worse. This only gets worse as time goes on. Exactly, because by 1919, which just a year later, they had a debt that was totaling something like 24 million Swiss francs. Now, I don't know what a Swiss franc was valued at in 1919. Uh-huh. But if you're in debt 24 million of them, that can't be good, right? I mean, when you're trying to trying to uh, you know continue manufacturing, so 1919, uh, not a good year for them. By 1920, I think that the entire um, operation was shut down. Right? I mean, they decided that they're not going to build pick picks anymore, but they were kind of uh, sort of rescued, I guess. Yeah, they uh, they have one or two rescuers, as we'll find out. Oh, one thing, Scott, I can't remember if we mentioned this at the top of the episode, but. The industrial manufacturers of Picard Pictet before they concentrated on cars, um, you know, we said they made a lot of things. One of the things they were most well known for making was turbines. Oh, okay. Well, then that makes sense with the company that came in and bought them in 1920. Mm-hmm. Because in 1920, I think, and I'm going to try this here. It's Nome Iron. Is that right? Uh, you know what? Sounds kosher to me, man. Close enough. Anyways, the, uh, the, the, this company came in and they were a, um, an, a French aircraft engine manufacturer, which totally makes sense then. You know, they were right. continue to build, uh, the turbine engines, which they were known for, but they were still making cars. They were, they were using whatever was left over from the Picard Pictet, um, you know, group or the factory, and they were building like maybe three or four cars a day. You know, something like that. It was extremely low production because they were now focused on building aircraft engines. So they're just using the extra spare parts in order to build these last few cars that they could. Mm -hmm. Whatever parts they had left, I guess. And, uh, you know, as as far as this goes, you know, there was another company that came in. um, You said another group of guys came in, I think, to uh, another consortium, right? Yeah. In 21, in 1921, the factory itself was taken over by a... Group called Les Ateliers de Charmilles SA. I am 
I am so sorry for my mispronunciation. That is close enough. Neither one of us speak French, obviously, so oh, uh, we're doing the best we can with this one. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, maybe somebody will help us out with the pronunciation, uh, just like who was that fantastic Australian listener who sent us a city guide? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> no, so that's been very helpful along the way. It has been. And you know what? Let me tell you, like... They were building something like two cars a day at this point. So, so I just right. found the note here: two cars a day, um, sold for something like twenty thousand mm-hmm. Swiss francs, mm-hmm. and it was a four-seater touring car. That's that's what they made, and that was the end, I guess, because you know, again, they're focused on these these French um, French aircraft engines, at right? This point. And then another group comes in. This is all very corporatized, sure. right? Another group comes in in nineteen twenty-two. They pay off the debts for pick pick uh and they want to make a huge car industry but unfortunately too much damage had been done mm-hmm. uh there was it was a dollar short or a franc short a day late and uh nice ben thank you man um and so in 1924 uh the last car left the factory yeah that's right and now the the uh the one that we actually see the one that uh, you know we've got in uh, in the picture here and the one that was at the Geneva Motor Show this year yeah. is a 1914. So this is a 100-year-old vehicle. Uh, but again, you know the, the 1924 model. I don't know if that one's still around or not. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it, I find this so strange, Ben. When I look back, I can see you know photo after photo of these guys out at the racetrack. I mean, here's a a, a pick pick racer from 1914. Yeah, and that's a cool looking car. And yeah. then there's a group of um, you know military guys working on you know from, from the Swiss Army. And they're working on a car that's a 1912 model. And then you can find, you know, pictures of the factory where their their cars are rolling out of the back door of this factory. You know, complete vehicles parked in a big lot. Yep. And where are all those cars? What happened to all those cars? Because three now exist with the pick pick badge on them. And again, maybe, maybe I'm just twisting things around here because this this uh, this article doesn't quite put all the pieces together for me. Mm-hmm. But I think that maybe it just has to do with the ones that are actually badged pick pick because. Uh, the switch over to the the PP, right, and also you know the ones that were Hispano Suiza cars that carried the SAG badge as well, the SAG badge. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I can't. I just can't figure this one out. I can't wrap my head around exactly what's going on. There, it seems like there are a lot of professional investors and professional manufacturers who are kind of trading a similar design back and forth across badges. Mm-hmm. Which makes it, which makes for a very interesting situation where, you know, four seemingly different cars or at least differently marketed cars are the same car, really. This, well, this happens today and they call it badge engineering, right? Like, right, it's a yeah. badge engineered car and that just means they throw the, you know, the more expensive mark badge uh-huh. on a certain type of vehicle sure. with the exact same everything else, you know, maybe a few amenities. Mm-hmm. And they charge a significant amount of money more for that same vehicle with the same engine, the same setup, the same chassis, everything. Oh, and yeah. uh, it's called badge engineering. And I mean, it's it's prevalent today. It was prevalent all the way back before World War One, which I found pretty interesting with these cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole history of the the peak peak and the you know the way that it switched so often. Yeah. And uh, it, I just I just find it fascinating. You know, Scott, it occurs to me that maybe we should do. Uh, an episode on badge engineering. Not a bad idea. Because I, I don't know if you've ever been around uh, someone when they hear that for the first time, mm-hmm. but the reaction is is amazing. Well, it's it kind of depends on which side of the fence you're on. Yeah. If you just paid a lot of money for a car with a, an impressive badge. Right. Uh, you know, there's more that comes with it, too. I mean, there's warranties that come with it that sometimes sure. are better. Um, you know, service sometimes is better for the uh, the better mark. 
Um, man, this is a good one to dig into. We should yeah, probably do that. Sometimes it is a fool in his money situation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, all right. So we hope that you enjoyed our exploration of uh, Geneva's first and at this point only domestic car manufacturer. Yeah. And I tell you, you've almost got to read this article to try to get like all this straight in your head. You know, like the, the article that, that you came up with here, Ben, this New York Times article. Yeah. Um, just take a look at it and, and read through and you'll get a more concise story of it. But uh, we tried to add a little bit of flavor here and there with, you know, the World War One stuff and mm-hmm. the brothers and all that. But um, interesting, interesting story. Weird, weird car. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Uh, check us out on Facebook and Twitter with some more suggestions for other cars that we should cover, uh, races you'd like to hear about, and so on. We are all ears. And you can also send us an email directly. We are carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.